Well, welcome. Good morning. I am so glad to be here. Yes, I am Chris Vogel, who gave the privilege to Samuel Brown to marry my daughter. <laughs> uh, we, we've been here, obviously, over the last three years a number of times, enjoy coming to visit, so much so that we are actually down here now for three months. Um, we decided to, given my, my job and my ability, to be able to just pick up and uh, uh, you know, do what I do just about anywhere. We thought we would do it down here because you know, we're up in Wisconsin and we didn't want to see any more snow. <laughs> Within 24 hours being here, we get a little snow, but it will be gone, so it's, it's not, at all, not at all a problem. Yeah, my, my role, um, yeah, having pastored a church for 26, planted and pastored a church for 26 years, morphed as we began training leaders in Wisconsin. Um, we started about four years ago uh, with really no one um, to, to speak of within our, our region, our, our presbytery. Uh, we, we've got now 25 uh, men who are studying and preparing in Wisconsin and being, being trained, and that has taken off, which then has launched next-gen pastors. So if you, if you look at that baton, um, that it, it says it on there. I gave one to Philip and one, one, one to Sam as a reminder, as they're passing on, on the baton to the next generation. That's part of my role then for the denomination, is helping them think all that through. And so this morning when, when Sam said, you know, when it was, Thursday or Friday, you know, do you mind preaching? Sure. <laughs> um, thought that, that this would be a good passage um, to come to in Second Timothy 2, 1 through 7. We heard it read. And let, let me just uh, once again open up uh, in prayer, asking for God to guide us. Our gracious Lord, our loving Father, we indeed are thankful for your generous mercy and your great grace. Father, now open your word, open our hearts, our minds to hear, to know, and to do that which you command. That the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, you may, may have heard the phrase used one place or another that past performance is no guarantee of future success. Sometimes it's included on a mutual fund prospectus or an investment disclosure, but it's true in all of our lives in so many different ways. Parenting success with a four-year-old does not mean everything will go swimmingly when they're 14. Acing that test at the beginning of the semester doesn't mean you're going to get an A on the final. Satisfying your boss on money doesn't give you a pass on Friday. Well, the same is true for sports teams. I will not bring up the fact that we're from Wisconsin and the success of the Green Bay Packers this season. Well, let's move on. I don't want to spend any more time there than I have to. It was especially proven in the 2008 Olympics that were held in Beijing. For almost 100 years, the U.S. Olympic team dominated uh, the track and field, especially the 4x100 relay race. They set the world record 17 times. They won gold 15 times in that race. And so as the 2008 Olympics approached, they thought, we want to do it again, but even better. So they formed an elite team, a super team dream team of the best, the fastest relay runners there were. All was going swimmingly, smoothly for the United States, the first two legs, but when Doc Patton closed in on Tyson Gay, Gay reached back for the baton, but they didn't connect. 
and a final lunge before they passed, came out of the, 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 the zone in which they could pass it. Gay's hands closed, the baton wasn't in it, and it dropped on the rain-slickened track. The crowd gasped. They failed. What happened? Carl Lewis, who himself had won two Olympic gold medals in, in the relay, had been a longtime critic of the U.S. track and field uh, relays. When asked about the events, he laid out all the problems of agents for the different athletes competing with one another, administrative uh, failure, volunteers not doing their job. But there was another problem that was brought out. Each and every one of these runners was the best runner on their other teams. But in the relay race, the best runner is the fourth runner, the last runner, who brings it home. The last runner knows how to do one, well, two things, run fast, but he knows how to receive the baton. He's never been trained to hand it off. And so having all these fourth leg runners meant none of them really knew had been trained sufficiently in that, 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 that so critical part of passing the baton. On this morning's passage in 2 Timothy, we hear Paul writing to, to a, we always say a young man. He's probably now in his 30s, maybe pushing 40, maybe even a bit older at this point. But Paul's languishing in a Roman jail, abandoned, awaiting execution. He pens this letter to Timothy, giving final instructions. Paul is passing the baton. And as he does so, he's giving these core instructions to Timothy that reminding him it doesn't stop with Timothy, it continues on. He wants to make sure subsequent generations not only hear the gospel, but are trained themselves to give it to the generation after them. We've heard the passage read, and, and as, as we look at this, it's, it's easy for you to think, you know, this is a, a sermon for, for pastors. This is just for, for Christian leaders, right? No. Remember, this is God's word, and it's applicable to all of us, even in the third chapter, verse 16, that phrase of, of the, the applicability of God's word, training all of us in righteousness. And so this is true for pastors and parishioners alike that we, having received the gospel, are to be passing it on, but not only that, pass it on in such a fashion to ensure that other generations hear and respond. In our passage, we hear our commission to pass the baton, not, not just in 100 meters, but from one generation to the next. And we are, in this passage, reminded as we, we, we pass this, this, the gospel on to the next generation, we are to do so as we are empowered by the grace of God for the next generation. We are to entrust the gospel to the next generation. And we are to engage in suffering for the next generation. Well, let's look at that first point. In, in verse 1, we see here that we are to be empowered by God's grace for the next generation. When he says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul uses language here that is, is familial, but it's also generational. You then, my child. Paul is illustrating how his view of the gospel is for the long haul. He opens with that familial language. Timothy's the next generation. It's not uncommon in the way Paul thinks. Look back up in the first chapter, verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved 
child. He points out these generational blessings again in verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Brings it up again in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where he talks of that generational transmission. It is something that doesn't meant to, is not meant to stop just with us, but to go on and on. Paul's challenge to Timothy in this passage is to be strengthened, he says, in chapter 2, verse 1, empowered. This is the first of the the three commands in this passage that really reminds us this probably was not Timothy's, let's say, his natural strength to be empowered, to be strengthened. Now, it's kind of like this command of uh, Timothy to be strong is probably like telling me to be an NBA player. You know, yeah, you can tell me anything. It's just not going to happen for so many, many reasons. No, what, what is Timothy supposed to, to do here? Well, early in the letter, we're told he's, he's not to be fearful. Look back at chapter 1, verse 6. For this reason, I reminded you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For, my God, gave it, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Timothy's flame, wick is flickering, but it need not. Verse 7, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, of love, self-control. That word power there is the same word in chapter 2, verse 1, to be strengthened. The root in the Greek is the same. The idea here, indeed, is that, that Paul is, is wanting him to, remi to remind him that you must be strong in many ways. I somewhat wonder if, if Timothy's nickname was Timothy the Timid. But no. There is something he's supposed to do. Now, how is he going to do this? To steal himself off? To, 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 to just push back fear? To seek power within himself? No, Paul here is not acting like a sports coach to say, you can do it. Try harder. He's not a drill sergeant just screaming the instructions to dig deep and move on. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says it's done by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The starting point when discussing how we move from one generation to the next is not by what we can do ourselves. And we're not calling the next generation to just to buck up and do it like me. In my day, we had it hard. You got to do it too. No, it's looking outside of ourselves. Not seeing within us what we think we can do, but seeing the grace of Christ Jesus at work in us. What, is, what the, does this mean for us, how we're raising up the next generation of, of leaders? Again, the, the race here that's being spoken of is not one just about pastors or professionals. It speaks to all of our relationships. It speaks to how we, we raise our own children, how we interact with the other children here at Trinity, how we think and speak and pray for our grandchildren and others, those in our small group, all those, the men and women whose lives we impact each and every day. A race isn't, again, just for the professionals, but it's always to keep in mind you don't know who will be the next generation of leaders. You don't know who will be the pastor at Trinity in 20 or 30 years. It could be one of the young people sitting here today. And to realize that anyone 
who gives their life to Christian service. In the broadest sense of the word, it's being spoken of here. Now, when we do think of pastors in, in our tradition, we often can pride ourselves on a superb theological training. We have rigorous examination for moving through the process of licensure and ordination. The credentialing process is, is, is indeed it's a good challenge. But remember, if those young men going into ministry are not reminded of the need of the grace of their Lord Jesus Christ, that that is the means by which strength and power can do it, you won't receive that encouragement either. That's part of the passing it on. As your, your leaders, the, 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 the pastors, the, the elders, the deacons in, in the church, those working with the youth, always acknowledging that it is only by the grace of Jesus Christ that they can do this. You know, you can give the most retiring bookish pastor the best theology, but if you don't point how those truths are to sink deep into his heart, so that as he proclaims the gospel, it's not of his own strength or his own knowledge, he will stumble and retreat, but get ineffective. Even if you have that, that natural-born leader, someone who just is so superb in, in, in how he leads, he has that confidence, he is, he is out there all the time, but without an understanding of God's grace that, by which we are empowered to raise up the next generation, well, obviously he can become a self-made pastor. Now, what is true for each and every one of us, the calling of from one generation to the next is that ongoing reliance not upon our abilities, but upon what Christ has done for us. Because we do not have it within us. Our brokenness, our sin, even as we heard read from in Genesis chapter 2, our first parents having broken covenant with God, and we in Adam, breakers of the covenant as well. That grace is what we need, not just because eh, we're just not as good as we think we are, we are broken. And Christ's death and resurrection is all that we need. That is the means by which we can be strengthened. So that empowering of the gospel allows us to do what? Verse 2, that we can entrust the gospel to the next generation. That's what Paul's bringing up here, that we are to entrust the gospel to the next generation. Paul says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Here we see Paul moving from encouraging Timothy to be strong in the grace of Jesus Christ, now to passing that on in his own life, passing the baton to the next generation. It's not enough to preserve the truth. It has to be handed off. Now, if you look back again in chapter 1, verse, verse 12, he, he uses a phrase there about this gospel as well. He says, um, well, but the second part of verse 12, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. But then down in verse 14, he says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, he tells Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Notice that transference there. But sometimes that word guard can, can seem to be a, a protective sense. I had no doubt in this, this afternoon's game, Von Bell running back to the Chiefs will receive the ball and he will guard it. He will not let it go, hopefully, if he's going to succeed in the sport. 
But guarding the gospel here, the way Paul describes it, is handing it off constantly. It's one of those aspects of watching football games when, when a team is in a desperate shape, the clock's running out, they have nothing else to do. I love when it just goes crazy, where they're just lateral pass back and handing off to somebody else. It's going all around us and a last desperate hope, if you will. Now, the good news is the gospel's not like that, but that is the intention. Not you're to guard it by making sure it is given to someone else. Our calling today is part of that apostolic chain of succession. <laughs> as Presbyterians, as Protestants, we don't talk about apostolic successions much because we, we imagine that it is in a context of, of you know, from the seat of Rome to, from one pope to another. But th there is a chain being passed on here. It's the gospel chain that is moving forward. It starts with Paul, moves with Timothy, and, and as Sam mentioned, with, with John to Polycarp to Irenaeus, there, we are all part of that. We would not be sitting here were it not for generation and generation and generation giving it to us. Notice that communal element, though, as, as he describes. How is that, that gospel entrusted to the faith of men in the presence of many witnesses? I love that picture. This is not a private event. This is not done in secret. Now, in the ancient world, the, the, the knowledge that was the most powerful knowledge was always conveyed privately, like magic formulas or, or hidden things. If you give me enough money, I'll give you knowledge. Now, I won't try to make too much of the same connection in our day and age, but let's kind of, let's face it. If you want knowledge that will help you succeed, you go to a university. And I think the last time I checked, they want money for that information. And, and not only that, you just don't walk in and go, you know, I feel like Harvard this year. I'm going to go to classes there. You have to be admitted into it. There is a certain privateness about the whole process. It's the way it works in the world. But not with the gospel. Here, this, this entrusting to faithful men is done and with witnesses all around. The gospel comes to us free of charge. It's shared out of nothing. There's nothing to hide. It's not just for insiders. Yes, there is a one-to-one -one engagement when we are doing discipleship. But it shouldn't be private. It should always be thinking and acting in the context of the community in which we're in. No, the discipleship here should be passed on. See, our vision is not just for that one runner, but the one who follows him. Kind of think of an analogy that, that if you're a parent of a, you know, of, of a younger child, that might freak you out a bit, but let's, let's at least try it for now. You're dealing with your six-year-old, wanting him or her to, to be properly compliant. Usually we do, do so for the immediate. I don't want to get embarrassed. I don't want any more yelling and screaming in my house, and not just my own, but yours. And so I will work with them in that context. But what if you thought, what would it be like to raise up my six-year-old with a view in mind that they would be raising their six-year-old? In a sense, that's what we're doing when we disciple someone else. Not just for them to understand the information, but to give it off to someone else. We have a generational vision for the body of Christ. In many ways, that's what I'm doing now with NextGen. And I'm finding it's often the case as as pastors my age begin looking at perhaps the, the last, I won't use a percentage, 
quarter of, of their ministry, of their life, going, what am I going to know? I have thoroughly loved the work I did in the church in Wisconsin for 26 years. But I kept thinking, what about the next generation? It's not just enough to make sure that we have, you know, well-behaved members and, and elders, deacons serving in the church. What about others? And so in that context, seeking to, to bring these pastors together, finding, and what I'm doing now is, is training seasoned pastors to be good mentors and then giving them the material that they can, not just having casual conversations with, with young, younger men in the context of ministry, but then to be able to pass it on and with some very specific applications. Now, there's always this broader audience. There is a target recipient, faithful, trustworthy men. And that's very much part of the, the pastoral letters of Timothy and Titus. As Paul is writing, he is concerned, concerned for the gospel to continue of passing it on. Why? Because there's a lot of unsound teaching going on out there where the, the truth of God's word is not being properly understood and applied. And so he wants to make sure that as they're broadcasting this out, others, others will be able to proclaim it. Now, as I said earlier, in our context, we've got great places that, that, that enables people to learn sound theology. Nothing's perfect. Not until Christ comes. But we've got that pretty good right now. We've got opportunities for them to serve, places and churches to serve. What is so needed, though, is what we call character formation, soft skills. And so the focus of what I'm doing with NextGen is making sure pastors in formation while they're studying and preparing for ministry in the early years of ministry, for those of us who have been in ministry for years, to understand what is spiritual formation, what is self-care or soul care. Emotional intelligence, cultural intelligence, leadership, marriage and family. That's where the ton can so often be dropped. And so in that same context, as, as we're seeing several or a couple dozen of these cohorts all around the country working with others, just to call you to consider, what does that look like in your context? How is the baton being passed on? And certainly we, we have seen here how we are to entrust because we are to be empowered. But the context of all this that Paul brings up next is a little different than what we might expect. Notice here in verses 3 to 6, six the, the last thing we're seeing is we are to engage in suffering for the next generation. How, do, how are we to be empowered with the gospel of Christ, to entrust that gospel? It's the context of suffering. Verse 3, he uses these three examples. Share in suffering, he starts off, as a good soldier. He mentioned the soldier. And then verse 6, it's the hardworking farmer. And back up in verse 5, an athlete is not crowned. Those three metaphors are, have an interesting way. He even ends up there in verse 7. Think over what I say. And you have to go, why did you use those three? Now, I'll have to admit, as I look at those three of, 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 the, of the soldier, of the athlete, and the farmer, and I look, those don't necessarily hit me. I, I came of, of age in the, in the late 60s through the early 70s where, where uh, you know, military was not looked well upon. And I grew up in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, home of the Amish and Mennonite. I'm not raised that way, but surrounded by strong, a strong pacifist context. So, so I think I, I don't understand. I've never been in the military. 
Next one, an athlete. No, that's, that's not who I am. And then first, the hardworking farmer. Uh, one of the uh, men in my church, he was a drywaller, and he used to make fun of, of me, and especially the, the other pastor. He called us kitty softballs, you know. Your hands are so gentle. You know, like, Stop it. Um, you know, because I make my living reading and talking. So, but what do these three metaphors really are meant to say? The soldier. This first one in, in verse 3 no soldier gets entangled in the civilian pursuit since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. There's a single-minded devotion to a soldier. Not a good soldier if you're distracted. Notice here, the, imagine a soldier who complains about his living condition. It's not what he's used to. He was raised for a better life than this. He gripes about how war stresses him out. I don't like the sound of, gun, sound of gunfire. I don't like that sergeant yelling at me and telling me what to do. I have my own thoughts. It won't work. No, proverbial obedience, deep loyalty is what marks a soldier. It's a story from First World, World War. Field Marshal Foch, the, the French general in World War I, once commanded an officer saying, you must not retreat, you must hold at all costs, to which the officer he was commanding said, sir, if we do that, we will die to which Foss said, precisely. And this officer followed the command. We are commanded to join in suffering, join in obedience and flagging loyalty, to sacrifice. That's what's being described here. The single-minded devotion of the soldier that will not get distracted by everyday affairs. About Two, three, 300 years after this was written, there was the Roman Code of Theodosius in which it said, we forbid men to engage in military service to also engage in civilian occupations. You couldn't be bivocational. You were a soldier or you weren't. And that does not mean that the soldiers were not engaged in the community and the culture around them. They were very much engaged. They were not monks sequestered off, but they understood they were not seeking their own ease and pleasure. They were single-minded, and that is our calling as well. The second picture is that of an athlete. Uh, whereas the soldier is single-minded devotion, what about the, the athlete? Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Well, there's an aspect of rigorous exercise is the focus here. Again, there could be many reasons I'm not an NFL uh, running back. Primary reason is because, you know, as a kid, uh, when I grew up, it was Johnny Unitas, I was, you know, just north of Baltimore, and Johnny Unitas was, was our, our hero as a kid. And we, we played every weekend after school, and some of us thought we are going to be football superstars. Nope, didn't happen. For a variety of reasons. One, I didn't like practicing all that much. <laughs> I just wanted it like that. Nope, not going to happen. To compete, you've got to work hard. And what it says here, according to the rules, there's certain rules for the Olympians in Paul's day. To win the crown in, in the Olympiad, the games, following the game's rules were critical. And one of them was you were to participate in a 10-month training, and you were to certify that you trained for at least 10 months. Now, imagine, if our athletes only trained 10 months and then, then competed, but that they had to certify. They had to show it. If not, 
they couldn't compete. There was rigor involved. April of 1980, a woman named Rosie Ruiz crossed the line at Boston Marathon's uh, final with, a, with a, an amazing time, two hours, 31 minutes, 56 seconds. She broke, she shattered the female fastest time and was recorded the, the third fastest female marathoner ever. But it didn't take too long, so there were certain suspicions that amounted about Ruiz, almost from the beginning. The men's winner, Bill Rogers, had just won his third straight Boston Marathon. He noticed that Ruiz couldn't recall certain things that any marathoner knew, the intervals, the splits. Others noticed she wasn't really panting when she crossed. There was no sweat on her body, and her physique was, well, it wasn't that very lean and toned that of a world-class runner. Well, the reasons were simple. Rosie jumped into the race just before the end and finished. Now, that's my kind of marathon, if you ask me. You know, why? I'd rather drive 25 or 26 miles and do the last point three or whatever. Now, she broke the rules. She refused the hardship. The training wasn't really worth it. She just wanted the prize. Doesn't work that way in the Christian life. But the context of suffering, the attempt to avoid suffering, or situations that might lead to suffering, that is breaking the rules. We are called to follow in the footsteps of Christ, not for our own pleasure, our own ease, our own comfort, but according to the rules, and that can be rigorous. The last picture here, verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. You know, of the three, I think the farmer has the least notoriety. We, we, we properly are uh, pleased and, and happy with those in the military who give us peace and protect us. The athletes obviously have the platform that we hold them up. But the farmer, there's toil, hard work, and what do they get out of it? A share of the crops. We are reminding of that hard work and striving, patiently enduring nature of farming in which the benefit is always a bit off. It's never finally there. Its seasonal nature reminds us, enjoy it now, you do it all over again. So we are called to reflect on these, these three pictures. Verse 7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Pay attention, Paul says, connect the dots. False teaching says what? You should be free of suffering. Christ's death and resurrection means you don't have to worry about it. You shouldn't suffer. You should just do what makes you most happy. You know, I have to admit, for this stage of life, comes a point where I want to go, put in 40 years in ministry, one fashion or another, I'd like to take it a little easier. You know, when I had kids, I did the nursery. I think I'm done now. No, the picture here reminds us that success is found not in just being the fastest runner, but in passing the baton. The context of passing the baton is suffering, and the theme of Timothy, and for us as other disciples, is to keep that always in mind. The finish line is eternity, and we're still running the race. And right now, all over the world, and as it has for the last 2,000 years, batons are being dropped. And we won't know if 
For us, until we're on that last leg of the race, we are so focused on rounding the track as well as we can, we can almost assume there will be someone to take the baton from us. But we have to remember that past performance is no guarantee of future success. Just because I've had this great training doesn't mean the future will unless I, too, am engaged. Now, here's the good news of the gospel for us. Here we can be reminded, indeed, what, what God has done. In, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, or those witnesses again, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, you and I are not running this race on our own. It's not just about the stiff upper lip and working harder and keep practicing. What it is, is that we have someone who has ran the race and finished it for us, who has gone before us and enables us to pass the baton because he's passed it to us. He's calling us to do the same. Now, where do we find grace for such a race? It's found here at this table. It's found in once again coming, taste and see that the Lord is good, to be nourished by the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection, of knowing indeed that we can be empowered by his work for us, to entrust the gospel for those around us so that we would finish that race. No, indeed, if, if you are here with us, this, as you're here with us this morning and the table is set before us, to know this is how you're going to continue to pass it on, to call and speak to one another of what is meant here and how we, having been called by God's grace, are to receive it and to speak to others about it. So if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, just remember in good standing of a church in which the gospel is proclaimed, you are invited to this table. Indeed, we are pleased to have you with us in the opportunities that are before us. That we have at the table an opportunity to recognize his grace and his mercy.